Welcome to The Weekly on WOBC Oberlin 91.5 FM, Oberlin College and Community Radio. I'm Jamie Yu, and with me is Owen Anderson, and we are the Co's News Directors for WOBC this academic year. We hope you're all doing well. For today's show, we have a staff writer from the Oberlin Review, Casey Troost. We were very excited to ask Casey about her OTR interview with Samuel George, an alumni from Oberlin's class of 2007. Casey, thank you so much for joining us. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, hi, I'm happy to be here. I'm my name is Casey. I use she hers. I am a third year at Oberlin and I have been doing journalism I want to say since my sophomore year. So it hasn't even been that long. So, uh Casey, I'd like to get started with um some questions uh about your article this week. Um firstly, uh what made you want to take on this article? Um I've written a lot for arts before, and I thought the documentary sounded interesting. I really like documentaries, and actually, I audited a documentary course um, this spring semester previously, right when the pandemic started, so I knew a little bit, actually, about the process of documentary making and what documentarians look for. Um, So I heard about this documentary, and I was also very interested to look at um, what is go-go. Go-go was like a completely new term to me. I had no idea what that meant. And I wanted to know what it had to do with gentrification and Black Lives Matter. Um, so that was like an, an active inquiry for me personally going into the film. Um, yeah, those were my motivations. Casey, did you get to watch the documentary film? Oh, yeah. I would consider myself doing a bad job if I did not watch the documentary before I asked the questions, because I often find that when you are preparing an interview like this for someone who has done a piece of art, a piece of work that you are then responsible for kind of covering in an interview format, you really do want to look at the work before you're asking any questions Mm -hmm. (laughs) because your questions are probably your questions probably aren't going to be very good uh, to be honest if if you don't understand what you're talking about because probably at least the first third of the interview is going to be devoted to talking about what actually you're talking about which um is first of all a waste of your interviewee's time and will make them less likely to talk to you and second of all a waste of your own time because you could have been doing this far far before um, so yes, I did watch the documentary beforehand and you should, if you ever write for the Oberlin Review and you're writing about a documentary, watch it beforehand, guys. Mm-hmm. No, I totally agree. And as someone who's, who's been on that before, I think proper research is integral to any sort of interview. I mean, even, I think what I find so interesting about journalism as a whole is that research can mean so many things, even if it's just something like watching a movie. Last spring, I had to write an article on the film Parasite because the Apollo was holding a screening, and I hadn't gotten the chance to watch it beforehand. So I wound up, um, I I couldn't catch the Apollo screening myself, but I wound up watching it on YouTube movies at double speed just so I could watch it in time for the article. It was an excellent movie, and I'm I'm glad I I got a chance to. So that counts as research, I guess, and um, you never know what what it might entail. So, um, so you got a chance to watch the documentary. Great. Um, and it's being screened February 11th for Oberlin Community. Um, do you have any reactions in advance of that for them? 
I thought it was very poignant. I thought it was very well paced for a documentary of that sort of length. It was well contained. It was short. It was within an hour. And typically documentaries that I've seen go over an hour, especially if the person that's making it is very, very passionate about what they want to be filming. Now, that should not be seen as a reflection on Samuel George, who is extremely passionate about what he's making. I think this is just more so a reflection of um, the heavy editing that he's had from a guy that works for ABC News, I think. Um, and then also, like, all of his editors at the at the nonprofit. So, yeah, I thought it was very, very poignant. I also thought that the documentary was really well-timed. He started making that... I think this January, this past January, a year ago, far before like George Floyd happened, far before Black Lives Matter has become what it was on social media, as we saw in the fall, um, far before we saw any protests um, on the Capitol, I believe, before like the White House, all of that. I mean, of course, we had all of this un unrest um, very sensibly about Trump and the White House, but it was very strange just to see this documentary come out fully packaged right when all of these issues were really, really, really coming to the fore in social media. This is not to say that these topics only became important now because they've always been important. It's just kind of the collision of a bunch of different types of media attention with this documentary. Yeah, and I think that's a good point, too, that the documentation has also been out there, but just also not been at, at the forefront of right, yeah. um, areas that it can be promoted. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. That's also the timing of this documentary, especially. I know. It was really freaky. I was really struck by this the description on the website that um, Sam was able to get firsthand footage of the protests back in the early summer. Um, I assume that was, that was, I mean, that's, that's a, like really revealing, especially given how much media coverage it got to certain biases, like in mainstream news. So I'm going to pivot for a second. And um, I know you mentioned how he came off as like a very passionate filmmaker. Um, I guess like generally, what was it like to, to speak with him in general? He was someone who you would expect to graduate Oberlin, <laughs> essentially. Um, he had a very, very long thought process, and he would just kind of glide from one idea to the next until he would get to his point. And he would get to his point eventually. You just you could, would ride with him through all of the details because neither of us were really sure at that point whether anything was like important to include, and a lot of it was. Um, yeah, so he was very, very passionate, extremely, extremely knowledgeable, and also incredibly self-reflective, which is kind of something that this school really wants to imbue, I find, into its students is, is like this very constant like self-reflection, self-questioning, self-interrogation. Who am I? What am I doing, really? Who am I impacting? And that was very much thing, those were things that he asked himself constantly, not only in making documentaries, but also... Um, in the work that he was doing beforehand. He was actually a guy that specialized in international policy research. He was working for a nonprofit think tank to research international policy, especially in Latin America, South and Central America. Um, 
And one reason that he got into uh, documentary filmmaking is because he felt that he wasn't getting close enough to the people that he was studying. He felt that personally he was far too he was way too far away to get at what made the policymaking human. Um, so that was one reason that he started. So yeah, so he was he was very kind, very passionate, very patient, very talkative, which is very good for an interview format um, and very self-reflective, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I definitely, I can definitely see that just from reading the article. I remember he mentioned how he was really taken aback by just being able to conduct on the street interviews and how open and frank they were with him. Um, so I can definitely see that. Yeah. And um, so, so in the past, I, I've, you know, forgiven your articles for the review. I've seen that you've interviewed some alumni, um, such as Tiki Walker, among others. Um, but how is your experience with Samuel George compared to past articles in which you interviewed alumni. Did it feel different in any way, given the subject matter or just the type of person he was? Yeah, I mean, in a sense, it's kind of obvious. It's like saying, like, oh, like, how is this book different from this other book? Like, of course, they're different. All of them are different. All of them are unique. Um, So aside from the very kind of basic differences that come between person to person and between subjects of study, um, I wouldn't say that this was so much a standout piece um, to me, aside from maybe how meta it was, um, just because of who he was as someone living in DC, who was like a white 30s year old man making a film about gentrification. Um, So I think maybe like the meta qualities um, made it different the very personal questions I kind of got to ask. And I think, um, and that actually got published, I think, just because of who the Oblin Review is. Um, very direct questions like, like, what were you thinking? Like, you're white. Like, um, you wouldn't, <laughs> you wouldn't necessarily get to ask those sorts of questions. I think maybe another, maybe another publications directly about kind of the, the, the conflict of identity like that and then also kind of the power dynamics that underlie um this sort of work coming from one per- an outsider to a community that is very internal um yeah i mean that's what i would say mm-hmm. do you mean to suggest that like because the oberlin review is a student publication and these are like students talking with former students that it's you're able to be a bit more upfront with questions like those Less so that and more so actually because of Oberlin's reputation as some as a politically progressive college that has a lot of active and explicit identity politics happening pretty much at any given time. It is a very, very common subject of conversation between students, between administration, between faculty. It's something that we talk about a lot because we care about it a lot. So to ask a question like that from a student to an alumni would be very normal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I de- that, that definitely makes sense. I agree. The off-the-record OTR is a transcribed interview. How did you go about asking questions that would both inform the reader and give George space to talk in the conversation? Like, how, how did you, all, how did you <laughs> work it all out yeah, so <laughs> in the end? I ask questions similar to the way that I play the mandolin which is extremely messily and with not a lot of um, like transient thought kind of carrying through. Um, 
I prefer to have my interviews proceed like a conversation. I find that in that sort of setting, you make the person you feel uh, the person you're talking to feel like you care about them, like you care about what they're about, like you're going to respond to the things that they say to you. You're not just like a big bucket, just like sucking in all of their words to, to like do whatever you want with them. You're a person. Um, and they're a person and you want to like have like an exchange that's not just about the newspaper. It's about both of you having a conversation and being excited to talk to each other. So I'm, I'm a little bit loose with, with my interview questions, which is why um, the on the record interview has versions of the questions, which are maybe like a sixth to an eighth shorter than I phrase them. Actually, yeah, in, in the given interview. So the way I typically go about it is I will start by saying what I already know about this question. So I'll say, so you blah, 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 blah. And, and um, kind of give them like a background of, of where I'm coming from. Like I know A, B, C, D, E, and then I will start to phrase the question. And a really important thing to know about asking questions in journalism is you want to avoid asking yes or no questions whenever possible. So the things that appear as yes or no questions in the on-the-record interview were not phrased as yes or no questions um, just because it's very, very easy to shut your interviewee down. You say, did you do this? Yes, no. They'll say yes, and then nothing, <laughs> which, is, which, is not very, which is not very helpful. Um, so I will rephrase things in a what or a how, and I will typically give some ideas of, of like a type of response. So I'll like give some alternatives. Like you could say, um, like, and I'll, and I'll kind of like do a few offshoots just to give them like an idea of what sort of response I'm looking for. So it's kind of like, I'll talk for like 30, 45 seconds up to a minute even. Um, and then they'll just go, they'll just, they'll just go for like two minutes um, and just keep going. Give them a launch point. Yeah, you give them a launch point. Yeah, and they, they grab it. It's like it's like your uh, relay. They grab your baton and they're like, and they just keep going. Welcome to The Weekly on WOBC Oberlin 91.5 FM, Oberlin College and Community Radio. I'm Jamie Yu and with me is Owen Anderson. And we are the co news directors for WOBC this academic year. We hope you're all doing well. For today's show, we have a staff writer from the Oberlin Review, Casey Troost. We were very excited to ask Casey about her OTR interview with Samuel George, an alumni from Oberlin's class of 2007. And I think I think that that's where the research is so important too, because if you need you need like to know what you're talking, you need to know what you're asking about in a sense, um, because I mean because the interviewer I think has a responsibility to not just be like on the same level as the reader, but like be more informed than the reader, because their main goal is to inform the reader. Um, so even though you're the one asking questions, it should be coming from a place of like context. And I think that's really important because if it's just, if it's completely, uh, if it's from like a, a place of like complete unknown, then it's really hard to like generate meaningful questions that way. So I think that's totally important. And also like, you know, the, the interesting thing about journalism is that you're meant to keep a professional tone but with interviews. It's supposed to be it, it should be a bit more interpersonal, not necessarily informal, but like that's how you kind of get better answers that way, I would say. Uh, so while we're on the subject of being interpersonal and having a conversation, do any parts of your interview with Samuel George stick out to you or that you liked in particular? 
Um, I think the biggest thing for me was that he learned to make films with almost no formal training to speak of <laughs> at all, which was, which is for the quality of the film, shocking to me, shocking, especially, um, knowing what I know about, um, the professor who led that class on documentary filmmaking and knowing how much goes into into making a documentary um one of my friends actually makes costumes or got a degree in costuming from rutgers and she told me um that behind every single detail in a movie there's 10 phone calls um so so to encounter someone who is winning multiple awards for 15 documentaries that they've made all of which really interesting and important and involving a lot of travel and again really critical self-reflection making a movie about people that that you don't really know people that of a community that you're not a part of um for someone who's had no experience whatsoever that was shocking to me and that made the interview all the more interesting like how the heck did you learn all of this and he and he totally he fully obliged me he was like I went up to people on the street I interviewed people I did what I thought I should do and a lot of the time that was the correct decision to make um and then whenever he said whenever he came up to anyone who was formally trained in documentary making uh he would basically ask them questions until he thought they were getting annoyed um so that was basically how he taught himself then i don't know do you have do you think you know what did prepare him then if not um learning how to make a documentary in like school or anything like what is it was there anything that came across as like oh it makes sense that he's good at this because x or was there anything like that yes so i think that the quality of your work be it a painting, be it a piece of writing, be it photography, be it a documentary, depends on how well you know the subject matter you're working with, the, the, the tangible stuff that you're focusing on. How well you know that comes through in whatever you're making about it. So Samuel George has been critically and professionally trained in international law, in in political issues and the way that people think about really broad political issues, political change, stuff that's happening to communities as a result of like global economy changes and trade and stuff like that. So he's coming from that background. He's good at talking to politicians. He talks to politicians all of the time. He understands how to write about policy and how to present policy and how to think about these critical issues, which I think is why he's had so much success making documentaries about the very same things. Um, so I think that's one reason we're like, yes, of course, like you would be very talented at this. Um, I think it also, though, comes down to personality. I think documentary making makes takes a specific sort of, of eye to look at things and ear to hear things. You have to be able to perceive things in a way that is transferable to film. You have to understand how film looks at things and how film sees things. Um, so that also worked really, really well for him. Um, and then I all would also say that before he was making documentaries, he was recording interviews. So he was kind of working with the kind of puzzle pieces of things that would become a documentary if you compiled all of them. So he would make these 10 minute um, kind of policy summaries for the think tank about international issues. He would interview politicians and stuff. 
Um, and, and yeah, so he kind of, he had all of these building blocks around him. And then when he started doing documentaries, he became so passionate about it that he worked so hard that eventually he got good at it. I think that's, that's my take on it. Why I think he got so, so talented. Yeah. Samuel is really cool person. Um, and I mean, you, you, you spoke with him for a good bit of time. Is there other parts of your conversation that like didn't make it into the article that were pertinent or relevant that you think people would 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 still benefit from knowing or something like that? Uh, I don't think necessarily benefit people, but definitely um, the Bertelsmann Foundation, who he works for. He did make a very very big point to talk about um, the big mentors that that really empowered him to be able to make documentaries because the Bertelsmann Foundation is was quite literally a policy think tank up until i want to say five years ago i think he said um and he was actually one of the parts of making the bertelsmann foundation um an organization that does make documentaries in a large part to his new boss who came in uh, her name was irene brahm and she saw his potential and she paid for really really expensive documentary making equipment and she said yes this is what we need. This is the sort of coverage that we want to get. These are the issues that we want to highlight. I'm going to support you. Go out and make the documentary. And he's been incredibly grateful to her for empowering him to do that. And he, I think I think making documentaries for him would have been much, much harder had he not gotten that institutional support from this person. Um, and he was also careful to, to um, thank Jeff Cook, um, which was his editor who's worked with him on a number of pieces. So I just, I was sad because of the word count constraints to not be able to include that, that sort of credit, um, because you should give credit when it's due. Um, so I'm glad that I get to bring it up now. Okay. Well, yeah, thank you for sharing. I think it's always like really great. I mean, there's a whole, <laughs> there's a reason why people thank people at the Oscars in their, um, in their, in their speeches, um, because, you know, Maybe there is one face of the project, but there's behind that there's an entire team that's uh, working behind the scenes to like put everything together. So I'm I'm happy that you know he was he acknowledged people as well. Um, so I, I wanted to pull back a bit and um, first of all ask you how long have you been writing for the review? Ah, I've been I've been writing for the review. Ooh man, I would have to like go into my like courses account and like actually look at the courses because my my sense of time is just so is so shot. I want to say I started writing for the review in the fall of sophomore year, um, and that was because I took like journalism basics, which is a course in the rhetoric department. Um, and alongside that, I did the practicum in journalism, which is essentially you write articles for credit and then reflect on the articles as you write them. Um, so that's when I just started like taking pieces of it and, and starting to work with it. I really threw myself in there. Um, I remember my first, the first article that I did was a film review of the, of the, of the movie Good Boys, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I wanted to ask you more broadly, how has your experience been writing for the review during the pandemic? Because I remember a lot of your old articles involved a lot of like on the field interviews and event space coverage. Very much so. Um, and I've been actually very lucky 
because the events that normally I would have to go out and chase down to cover themselves moved online. So um, I didn't necessarily have to do too much more like work to overcome that. It was actually easier just to be able to like sit in a chair and like <laughs> get everything I needed immediately off the internet, um, which is which has actually become a lot of journalism um, these days, unfortunately. I just I do want to bring up just for the sake of, of um, one of my rhetoric professors the importance as a journalist of going out and getting new information for a story that's already been well covered um, by a number of, of news. It's not just about recycling information; it's about adding information. Um, so, uh, I think I think the the lack of legwork for me was was something that I missed. Um, it is really nice to be able to actually physically change places to go and cover something. It kind of wakes you up in your mind and makes you pay more a little bit more attention to your surroundings. Like, okay, where am I? Who's around me? What what should I be paying attention to? Rather than just like looking at like a square screen, you know, that's like a foot by ten inches long. I don't think it became that much more difficult, but it was it was sad to kind of to miss that sort of exposure and to miss the opportunity to go and like kind of live the stories that that you were writing about. Yeah, I was thinking about how like how different it would have been if I couldn't actually go to the Allen to cover an art exhibition that was going on there. So yeah. I definitely agree. I think we've covered most of the questions that we had. Um, is there anything else you want to add, Casey? Um, I don't. I don't think so. Um, I'm very flattered that you guys would reach out to me, of all people, <laughs> to to talk about the experience of journalism. It's something that I'm that I'm really really interested in, but I'm for sure not the most qualified person to talk about it. I'm very very new, very green in the field. Um, so yeah, thank you for taking the time to talk to me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for being here. And honestly, I would say experience doesn't doesn't hinder your ability to talk about it. Just even just the the experience of writing like once is already something that you can talk about. So I definitely wouldn't sell yourself short there. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much, Casey. Welcome to The Weekly on WOBC Oberlin 91.5 FM, Oberlin College and Community Radio. I'm Jamie Yu, and with me is Owen Anderson, and we are the co-news directors for WOBC this academic year. Samuel George is a documentary filmmaker and analyst for the Bertelsmann Foundation, focusing on the intersection of economics, politics, the digital revolution, and daily life. Filming on the ground from the Turkish-Syrian border to the factories of Juarez, Mexico, his documentaries dive inside the social impact of critical crossroads around the globe. His last film, Swing State Florida by the Bertelsmann Foundation in 2020, won a series of awards, including the Award of Excellence from the Impact DOCS Awards, the Silver Award at the Spotlight Documentary Film Awards, and Best Urban Documentary at the Urban Film Festival. He serves as the Foundation's Global Markets and Digital Advisor and is completing a PhD at the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. The Bertelsmann Foundation North America, or BFNA, is an independent, nonpartisan, and nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C., with a transatlantic perspective on global challenges. Through research, debate forums, and multimedia productions, BFNA provides analysis and solutions to the most pressing economic, political, and social challenges impacting the United States and Europe. To date, BFNA has produced more than 20 short- and feature-length films, which have been recognized by film festivals around the world.
Now we would like to air the extended cut of Casey's on-the-record interview with Samuel George, OC07. A print version of the interview was published in the Oberlin Review Arts and Culture section on February 5th, 2021, which you can find on their website. Okay, um, really fast, I'd love to just confirm your name, pronouns, um, the name of your position at the Bertelsmann Foundation, um, how you refer to yourself in the article. Sure. Sure. So my name is Samuel George, or you call me professionally Samuel George. Uh, I go by Sam. Uh, he, him pronouns. Um, Oberlin graduate 2007, 2003 to 2007. Uh, I work for the Bertelsmann Foundation. We're a nonprofit uh, group in Washington, D.C. Um, my title is Global Markets and Digital Advisor. But in effect, what I do is I make documentary films, uh, sort of a, a mismatch between title and uh, activity. And does the Bertelsmann Foundation like kind of mostly work in film or, or is it do, does it do other things? Yeah, it's, well? a, it's a very interesting question. At once upon a time, relatively recently, I mean, five years ago, let's say, not at all. You know, we were very much a policy think tank that's where you get the kind of titles, job titles that you see, you know, so I, for one, uh, worked, I, I was a Latin Americanist and I worked on Latin America and I would write policy papers based on political and economic things happening in Latin America. And then a couple years ago, I started to slowly incorporate video work, um, into what I was doing. And we just had this wonderful moment where a new boss came in that was very artistic minded, very forward thinking, very willing to try new things. And she said, this video stuff could work. And she really encouraged not just myself, but the whole office to try out different ways to talk about issues. And for me, that's turned into really uh, documentary filmmaking, which now, I mean, and I still do other things. I still write. I still, uh, I also write animated films. Uh, but my favorite thing and probably the thing uh, I'm most invested in is the documentary filmmaking. Wow, that's amazing. Um, and then it, was, it was very unexpected and uh, it's been quite, a, quite an enjoyable journey. So I'm very thankful to that boss. Yeah, that's a that's a really big lucky break, and that's actually um, related to um, one of the first questions. Um, but real quick, another thing I wanted to confirm is your like degrees from Oberlin, and then also um, awards you've won for previous work. Yeah, uh, degree was a history degree. If uh, Professor Cohen is still there, he was my. Uh uh advisor it was really a wonderful time to be at oberlin i've been so thankful for this project to be able to get back in touch with the community so then you graduate oberlin you've got a history degree right. um, and you're interested in latin american studies so can you describe to me the transition from kind of graduating oberlin you have your prospects you have to go out into the world and make connections and where you're at now, someone who's made 15 documentaries yeah. and award winning. I mean, it was just so nonlinear when I, I ended up doing my Oberlin college thesis, not in um, 
Latin American issues, but in actually American, recent American history, talking about uh, actually urban issues. It's, it's the, the closest thing I've done professionally is this most recent documentary, but it was about urban issues in Philadelphia and how is it impacting criminal justice and systemic racism in criminal justice. And that actually led to a fellowship uh, with, with a young organization. It was then called the Stonely Center. I think it's now called the Stonely Foundation and the United Way, where the idea was to bring stakeholders to talk about community police relations. Um, and that was in, you know, I guess 2007, 2008. Uh, but I, I didn't exactly stick with that. I wanted, I had that kind of international bug. I wanted to get, get out and experience things. Uh, I ended up teaching English in Spain um, and did some traveling in, in Central and South America and just really started to feel like that was a passion for me. So after wandering for a while, I ended up going back to do a master's degree in Latin American politics and economics, just how I ended up in Washington, because I did it at Johns Hopkins and their politics school, international politics school is in Washington. And then I ended up with this job at a think tank writing policy. And it was like, I had tricked myself because the whole reason I did this work was so I could go travel abroad. But then I realized like Latin America didn't need me to come to there to tell them about them. <laughs> that was, they knew. The jobs to talk about Latin America were in the United States. So I found myself very much like tied to my desk a little bit writing from there. And I was like, wow, I, I need a new plan. And I think that's part of where I got this idea. Well, if I were to start recording some things like interviews, well, golly, I guess I'd have to be there, wouldn't I? Because you can't really do that from your desk. And that makes it sound sort of facetious. I mean, there were definitely other things involved. I mean, I think that this idea of being able to, I, I mean, I, I just think documentary film, but I, I didn't think about it like this back then because I didn't really understand it. So I'm trying to put my thoughts in order. I mean, I think that I always realized there was something beautiful about giving people the chance to tell their own story rather than them telling it to me and then me trying to synthesize it um, and, you know, really just kind of taking their words to make my own argument. Um, but what I really started to do was these interview videos. That's really how I learned this. And it's a wonderful way to learn is to interview somebody just as I would, you know, a normal conversation to write one of my policy reports, but I would interview it. And then I would cut up that interview. So I started to learn how to edit a little bit and then I'd have a nice interview video. And then I just sort of stumbled in like the discovery process, be like, golly, you know, here I am in Brazil or Argentina. Wouldn't it be good to have a cool picture, a video picture to put before the interview? So I would take some shots on the street. And then there were these like eye-opening moments for me when I would say to like a news, somebody at the newspaper stand, hey, you know, I just interviewed politician X and he said this. What do you think about that? And then he would just, you know, say his opinion. And you could do these magical things where you could combine what the politician was saying with, uh, you know, what the guy on the street was saying. And I had no idea what I was doing at the time, but what I was doing was learning about documentary filmmaking on the job, which is a complete, you know, in retrospect, an utter luxury. You know, I, I had this boss that saw it and saw the potential in it 
you know, and, and, and not only that, the, the other big moment that kind of breaks. So when I was first started doing what you would almost consider long form video reports, because they might be like 10 minutes long and they would feature mostly experts or specialists and, you know, my own narration. So it might be like the kind of thing you would see on a world news report. Um, but in really, and I always felt like, you know, as a policy think tank, I initially felt this pressure that it's supposed to be mostly, you know, these experts and politicians, and maybe we sprinkle in a little bit of real life. And the real liberating moment for me was when uh, our boss, Irene Brahm said, you know, that, that other stuff is really where the beauty of this is. That's where we're really, you know, we used to have this phrase, learn, connect and transfer. That's where we were capturing these bits of reality. And once I got the sense that that was okay, then it was, it was just something I kind of fell in love with, you know, I really did. And, and that's when I really started to think through the beauty of being able to, you know, like, just like they always used to say in fifth grade show, don't tell, you know, there's no medium that I've found that gives you the opportunity to show, don't tell as much as documentary. Um, and, you know, just to, just to, to, be able to work with beauty. You know, that's something I missed in my work when I got into policy, something that I went to Oberlin because at the time I was a very serious guitar player. I mean, I didn't study guitar there, but the idea was I'd like to be an artsy person. And I figured that was a good match for that. And that was something I had lost in my life and I was a little bit sad about. And, you know, to be able to bring that back in to the fold was, was really just a wonderful thing. And um, yeah. So I wanted to ask then, has your experiences with documentary filmmaking and this kind of new reverence for the autonomous person having control over how their story is told, how has that affected your view on policy recommendations and, and writing policy? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, one thing that I would say especially in, in my documentaries, and perhaps it's even a little bit of a cop-out, is because I focus so much on the context and the issues at hand, I really don't get into much the solutions. You know, it's, it's much easier to really, like I would say, if you would watch my documentaries, you more get to hopefully experience, walk a little bit in somebody else's shoes. Um, and maybe it is important to talk more about what, what are the solutions here. Um, but I do think that in this day and age, I'm extremely discouraged by the nature of our political discourse. Um, I think especially just the way it's kind of led by Twitter and things like that, where you take these extremely complicated things like immigration, um, and, and then you try to boil it down to something that fits in 240 characters. And once you start playing that game, it just becomes about the snazziest kind of gotcha quote um, and what I think that too is just to me leads to a policy discussion that's completely detached from reality. So when I try to do a documentary, I try to, to get to, to show a reality that could better inform a policy discussion. So one of my personal favorite pieces that I've done was called The Fields of Immokalee, uh, which is about migrant. Yeah, you, do you know Immokalee? I did a I did a whole research project on the coalition. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're, <laughs> they do excellent work. I'll send you when I send you the follow up email. I'll send you the link to that to that one. 
for me, the conversation, especially about undocumented migrants, had become so detached from the reality that to get a chance to go and kind of just immerse in that community. And that's why I like that, because I think I succeeded in my personal goal of just community immersion and making the argument subtly. Um, I really got out a lot of that experience. And it sort of counters these kind of very easy or simplified ways of, of looking at those issues. Um, so I guess what I'm hoping for is that if somebody watches this, they have a better approach when they sit down to think about policy solutions. That's awesome. Um, and then I'm sure you've probably been asked this a lot, but I feel like I wouldn't be doing my job if I asked it. Um, so you are a, I think you're um, in your 30s, 30s and a white man, and you have done a ton of documentaries about communities and people to which you are an outsider and you actively describe yourself as an outsider, giving space to people to control the story. And what I'm wondering is what sorts of conversations you've had with people about the sorts of things that you've been making about them, um, about identity, what things have come up in the process that have deeply moved you or made you reflect? That is such an important question. And I understand why this question comes up. I mean, it's really important about, about this day and age, about who gets, who is telling what story. And I think there's important reasons why we ask those questions. You know, because for one, a lot of people from certain communities don't have access to the storytelling process, and that's problematic. I, also, I think that there's a lot of times people come from outside and tell a story wrong, and that's infuriating for the people that are having their story told. Uh, and maybe that's stereotyping. That's a major issue. Maybe it's just you didn't get it right. You know, maybe you weren't trying to be, to do a misdeed, but you just didn't understand the community. So I think those are very, very important questions. Um, and I, I really take that very seriously, that if I'm gonna do this, it's important that it be correct, that it be reflective, and that it really be giving the people a chance to tell the story in their own words. And I'll admit, I feel that pressure, right? Because I mean, if I really don't want to get it wrong. And, um, you know, that's why some of the, the most important feedback comes from people that are in the documentaries who see it before it gets released. And I'm happy to say that at this point, across what I've done, it's always been positive. I've never had an issue where someone was like, that's not what it was. Um, and that means the world to me, because then I feel a little bit better going out and saying, you know, the feeling like this, this is not disrespecting these people, but rather sharing stories that are important. Um, and I, I do think for me, it's been eye opening to get to work with all different communities. I mean, it's not just as certainly here in the United States. And, if, uh, you know, when you talk about working even in my own city, but with a historic African-American community we're talking about gentrification where I am somebody who came in as a white person, but it's also going and working with Latvia, people in Latvia. I mean, you know, I may look similar to some people there, but you know, I had, I remember one interview 
on the Latvian-Russian border with an old man who was, of course, Latvia once upon being time in the USSR. This guy grew up in the USSR. And here we were in his, in his you know, little, little apartment on the border with Russia, having tea and, and smoking cigarettes and, and talking about life. And, you know, it was just such a mind blowing kind of like, what, who would have ever thought the odds of us coming together and having this conversation? But so, I mean, I, the, the issue with the representation is really, really big right now within the United States. But I also take that seriously when I go to Mexico, for example. And I also take it seriously when I go to say West Virginia and I'm dealing with an overwhelmingly white population, but one that is very different than my own and has been very negatively stereotyped. And I think my experience throughout is that some people will not wanna be in the documentary and that's totally okay. Totally respect that. I wouldn't wanna do it with somebody that didn't wanna be a part of it. Other people, when they see you realize you're an outsider, you know, there's always this, not always, there's often an initial concern. I don't want to say suspicion because suspicion makes it sound like bad. I don't think it's bad. I understand the concern, but I think that if you can get on the same page and that they understand that you're doing it for the right reasons um, and that they can trust you, uh, people really enjoy telling their story. You know, I really have found that to be true, that people, people, I believe people are good and I believe people think they're good and they want you to understand where they're coming from. Um, and uh, that's been my experience and, and I, I hope it stays as it's been positive. Um, really good question though, and, and, and no easy answer. You know, and I'll, I would I would also say I'm proud that we are considering issues that are important to the African American community, because a lot of times the Washington think tanks ignore those issues. Oh, really? Generally, I mean, yeah, because you're talking about international policy, and you know, I don't I don't go around and count who's doing what, but I would say that in the in the in, when Washington think tanks that I was familiar with, and maybe so 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 maybe I should be careful here because I don't want to say something that's not accurate, but especially in the international, like for example, I'll give you a for example. We have somebody that, a printer that works here, that that's what he says, I love it. I'll give you a for example. You know, when you talk about the transatlantic community, right? You're talking about issues that are in theory important to both sides of the Atlantic, which a lot of times can overlook uh, people of color. So that could be an example where in the international conversation, those issues get overlooked. And I'm really proud that in our work, we, we don't do that. So. That's awesome. Um, so then, so then getting deeper into this, this kind of in, entanglement between you, where you're living, um, kind of your ascribed identity, and then the identities of the people that you're working with. Go Go City was a very, very intense documentary to make for you, I imagine. Like you said, because you're, you're filming documentary about gentrification, which you as an individual have played a small, but still played a role in. 
Um, and I and you were there, I imagine, during um, the George Floyd protest after he was killed in Minneapolis, and you were there for the Black Lives Matter protests, and things have been getting very tumultuous with the White House. And I remember reading that at one point, the focus of the documentary changed from your initial yeah. motivation yeah, yeah, to yeah, cover yeah. go-go music to now cover more these protests and this more overarching problem. Um, so I was wondering whether you could get a little bit more into that sort of, into really, really working, not only with these people in a community that you are a part of, but also a community where you would be conventionally viewed as someone who was one of like the invaders or like coming coming in and participating yeah. in the occasion. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I think a lot of what you're saying is true. And, and, you know, I think that part of it comes from my anger with seeing what's happened with people like me. You know, I've been really offended by what Washington has become. Uh, and I've always felt that way since I got here. You know, when I got here, they were just starting to put up these luxury high rises and I would walk by them every day. You know, it's, it, I'll tell you the, the truth. I, you know, I'm somebody that really appreciates where I'm from. I like history. I told you I did history at Oberlin and I, you know, Latin America and I lived in, in, in Spain and I studied in Italy and I really love being in these old places. And when I first moved to Washington, I wasn't ha very happy because it feels like it was all built yesterday. I said, where's the depth here? Yeah. Where's the, where's the culture here? This looks like it, this, this new, you know, tequila shop with eight different colors of tequila with furniture from Ikea and it it doesn't where's the culture and it took me a long time to learn that, that that's not because the culture didn't exist it was because it was being pushed away and that made me mad and the way I really started to discover that culture is through go-go music and that once you can start getting a peep into that culture you understand that there was a real Washington here and it's been knocked over and then I can tell you, speaking to your question, you said, well, is it tough when they view you, you know, as the person that's conducting this? One thing I have overwhelmingly found is that the, you could say the indigenous people of Washington, and by that, what I'm trying to say is the long-term community of Washington. It's not even that they're angry at outsiders. They're, they've been, been nothing but nice to me and welcoming. When I, and I found this when I started going to the Go-Go show nothing but welcoming in their anger comes or their frustration comes from the feeling of being ignored and replaced and and people just not even taking their culture into question um i can't tell you and this blew my mind how many of the interviews on gentrification people would say but you know what really bugs me why don't people say hi why don't people say hi to us? When we grew up here, everybody would say hi walking down the street. And now these new people walk in and they don't say hi. And it's absolutely true. There's like two communities in Washington, like somebody I interviewed in the film. I don't think it ended up in the film, but she said it's like ships passing in the night. And I think that's probably because there's some shame felt by the gentrifiers. You know, I think there's also this thing where there's this, a lot of the people that moved to Washington, the young professionals have very stressful jobs that make them think that they're very important. You know, it's one of the problems with Washington, your life is kind of your job. And these people probably walk around thinking, you know, I just got an email from my boss and don't stop to appreciate the world around them. Um, 
but I did not ever feel an anger directed towards me, you know, and, and, and quite the opposite. I found people to be really welcoming and almost like that hurt more, more of a hurt that like, why, why aren't you checking out what's around you? So in the documentary, maybe you noticed we went to that Horace and Dickie's fish shop, the fish shop, again, a beloved kind of place in a heavily gentrified zone. And the guy was like, you know, people just don't come in. I don't, I don't have a choice. I don't, you know, my customer base used to be the people in the neighborhood. And now the new people coming in, they're not coming into the shop. And um, that's, that's, um, you know, that sucks. That sucks. It, su it sucks for Washington, you know, because the city, it's hurting the city. It's really sucking this true because it's not even just that it's hurting the culture. It's also that this culture was really cool. That's one of the things. So, you know, documentaries are also wonderful learning opportunities. You really learn about something when you do a documentary. And one thing that I learned is, you know, I always knew Washington was called Chocolate City. And to me, that meant it had a majority black population. But doing this project, I learned that it was so much more than that. It meant that it had a black working class and a black middle class and a black upper class and, and African-American businesses and a, and a world-renowned culture center. I mean, it was just the depth of this thing and how special that was in the 1950s and 60s and 70s. I mean, this was extremely unique. It was a touchstone, you know, to an extent, as sometimes people view like 1920s Harlem, for example. It, it was it was very important culturally in that sense. So it wasn't just the fact that it was it was majority African American. It was it was much deeper than that, and so much of that has been lost. And you know, just as a citizen, that's a shame. And, and I don't mean like that's a shame as in all shucks. I mean like shame on you. That shouldn't have happened. Shame on us. You said that you have been learning to make the documentary on the go, which has been an enormous privilege yeah and an enormous gift i was wondering whether you had any uh interactions with documentarians filmmakers who are like trained or and have been trained by the industry and by schooling um yeah. making the documentary and and what um interactions you might have have had with people like that yeah those are always beneficial and the truth is not a lot so whenever i have the opportunity to really get somebody I'll just sit there and pick their mind until the point that I think it kind of gets on their nerves, you know, <laughs> uh, but um, that I haven't as I haven't really been surrounded by it. You know, we were had this wonderful thing of being able to go to film festivals, uh, but then the pandemic hit. So all those festivals are now online. Um, you know, every once in a while I get to, 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 to hang around other people. And what I like to do is just be quiet and watch, you know, watch them work. But often that's in terms of interviews, you know, I can watch them set up an interview, which is an art in itself. But the stuff that I truly love is getting out there and rock and rolling. And I've almost always done that by myself. Um, and I've been doing it for a number of years now. So I've built up all these ways of doing things that I have no idea if they're best practices or not. You know, I have, you know, so I'll, 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 I try to ask just embarrassingly simple questions to the to big shots when I meet them. But it is very rewarding for me when I when I get confirmation, when I ask somebody a question, they're like, well, I do it like this. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's, that's how I do it, too. <laughs> you know? Awesome. Yeah. When the film gets screened, 
I was wondering whether you would have anything you'd want to say to your viewers, um, something about maybe the most poignant part of the film for you when you were making it or something that was like really, really moving to just see in the way that it's structured, something that you want someone to, to rewind and watch over and over again, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I completely agree with your assessment. Um, and I had no intention of that. Right. Like I wanted, I wanted a sneaky way to make a movie about go-go. And the way I could do that for, for a nonprofit institution that won't just let you make a film about music was to connect it to gentrification, which is a bubbling issue. But I can promise you when this got approved in January 2020 was not the front page of every newspaper in the country. And then as the year progressed, suddenly those issues did become centered. And, um, you know, that it's many things. It's 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 I mean, it, it's many things. First of all, on a national level, it's just long overdue. So, you know, I'm, I'm happy for that. Um, but it's definitely changed the approach to this documentary. The most poignant moments for me are when it all ties together at the end. You know, I started filming the protests, even though there wasn't necessarily a direct link to what I was doing, which was gentrification as expressed economically and culturally using GoGo as a, as a example A. That was not immediately what the protests were about, right? They were about uh, injustices and abuse in policing and criminal justice. Yeah. And I almost thought that what I was gonna make was gonna be something completely separate. Like maybe I would just make a short 10 minute video of scenes from the protest, lightly edited, sort of artistic, like puts you on the ground. But the most amazing thing happened, I think on the one hand, the point of the protests expanded. And I promise I'm getting towards answering your question. The point of the protests expanded beyond just systemic racism and criminal justice and uh, policing, but also uh, systemic racism in things like health, education, uh, economics, jobs. And I think that that is expressed differently in different cities and a central way it's expressed in Washington is in gentrification. So on the one hand, thematically, you started getting closer to the two things, but then the amazing thing happened. Go-go bands became a central part of the protest movement. The go-go bands were, were rallying the people. They were playing on these trucks and leading whole groups of people down to the White House, bringing people back to the streets that had been pushed off of the streets. So once you get to that point, what I was seeing was people rallying around that culture to retake the streets that they had been pushed off of. And the most poignant moment of the film for me is uh, when this one band is on a truck and I was able to get on the truck. So I was a couple feet from them. And there's and we're just, justice, no peace. Yeah, and it's going under the bridge. Yeah. And, um, and it was just this returning of, of that Washington community, a triumphant return, a triumphant return. And suddenly all those pieces were coming together from the beginning. And that's when I knew that, you know, that we really had a chance to pull these very different topics together. And that, so that shot going under the bridge with all the supporters, I think is the, is, is the moment that always gives me the chills. And, you know, that's also me doing what I love to do best when you get as close as possible to this, to your story. I mean, I think that's what I've always tried to do is get really, really close to my story. Uh, and, I, you know, we were right there. We were right there. Amazing. 
Wow. This is going to be a really, really good interview. I'll be sure to send you the link when it's up. It was nice Have to a nice day. You too. Go-Go City, Displacement and Protest in Washington, D.C. focuses on the forces of gentrification, the Black Lives Matter protests, and the city's beloved Go-Go music. Bertelsmann Foundation is partnering with the Oberlin Club of Washington, D.C. to arrange an online screening of the film on February 11th through the Oberlin Club of Washington, which will be followed by a panel discussion moderated by another Oberlin alum, Nana Fua Mumford of the Washington Post. To register for the film screening, follow the link at the top of Casey's article on the Oberlin Review website. You can also find more info about the film at gogocity.org. You're listening to WOBC Oberlin, 91.5 FM, Oberlin College, and Community Radio. This has been The Weekly. Thank you for listening.